Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Hello. Ah, what a lovely morning, yes? Okay. Thank you for joining us at today's 11th hour lecture presentation. It's going to be lovely, as Suzanne Scanlon is here with us today. Suzanne is the author of the novel, Promising Young Women, and also of her 37th year, An Index. Her fiction has appeared in the Iowa Review, among many other esteemed literary venues. She is a professor of creative writing at Columbia College Chicago, and as perhaps some of you well know, she is a wonderful teacher. Please help me welcome Suzanne today to discuss writing resistance. Hello, that works, yeah. Hi everyone, thanks for coming. Um, I'm going to begin by talking about this idea of writing resistance, of resistant narratives in a personal way, an, an essay, somewhat personal, an essay that will give you a sense of my artistry and how I came to this idea and how I think about this idea. And then we'll move into a discussion of different writers and artists and filmmakers who I believe um, kind of reveal or demonstrate the power of this, of this artistic impulse. Um, and then if we have time, hopefully we'll have time for Q&A as well as um, discussion of some examples I brought you in a handout. Is that going around or did it go around? Okay, yeah, and again, if we don't get to all of those, um, because I sort of overloaded that, it's something you can take with you and, and read and find inspiration, but we might have time for some of that as well. And hopefully I'll give you some prompts or ideas that you can take for your own writing. So I, I'm going to begin with a section called Time and Language. Ten years ago, I had a baby. I was living in Chicago with my then-husband, and many days that first year, I wasn't working. I wasn't teaching or writing. I was with the baby. I remember these days now as magical, but of course they were often boring, frustrating, exhausting. Sometimes when the baby woke up in that stretch between his second nap and dinner time, before my then-husband would arrive home from work, the baby and I would take a walk. We lived in the Andersonville neighborhood of Chicago then, and so we walked down Clark Street. Often we would stop in my favorite bookstore called Women and Children First, which some of you may know. It was a store I had discovered 20 years earlier when I was young and seeking inspiration and trying to understand what feminism was. I had grown up in Aurora, Illinois, and that wasn't something that anyone had told me about there. I had gone to Catholic school with um, nuns, and they didn't talk about that, although in many ways they embodied the, the ideas of feminism. Um, but in that bookstore in those days, I heard Adrienne Rich read before she died, and later I heard Alison Bechtel read, among many, many other women. And later, when I published my books, I read there. But in those early baby days, I would go to the children's section first, of course, where not only were there baby books, but there were toys, a toy piano, toy trucks, and my then baby would play for hours in that section. And here, if you'll 
allow me is a picture of him playing in that bookstore in his chicken costume. <laughs> and some days when the baby played, I tried to remember that I was a writer, which is a reader, and it was that way that I found the then first volume of the newly published journals of Susan Sontag, which I read eagerly, not forgetting the baby, but of rather remembering myself. And somewhere in those journals, Susan Sontag wrote notes from a recent conversation she'd had with her poet and pal, Joseph Brodsky. She wrote, Brodsky says, the only true subjects are time and language. Joseph Brodsky was her friend, and she jotted down these words of his she wanted to remember. That was all that was on the page, on that page. And it was thrilling for me to read these journals full of notes and fragments like this, memories, ideas, imperatives, an artist, a mind, always at work. Some of them were about her son, who was the one who edited the journals later and put them out. But it thrilled me especially to read these fragments before they were formed into a formal shape, as in her searing essays and fiction, which I had read, particularly because in those early baby years, that was what I was writing, fragments, time and language. So maybe that's what I mean by resistant narratives, or resisting narrative, as I have come to alternately title and think of this talk. Sometimes the resistance in writing might be to language itself, to a narrative, to the limits of the self as a fixed thing. A narrative like a self is never fixed. And sometimes we write to resist the silences or the erasures that grow up around a self, a self in a family, in a country, in a body. And sometimes, yes, we write to resist time. Brodsky's other true subject, time. As the writer Tobias Wolf once pointed out, time is your enemy in almost everything in this life, but it is your friend in writing. Or it can be. <laughs> time, if you learn to manipulate it on the page, and that, as writers, is what we're often doing, right? Time, yes. What is this desire to write, to put pen to paper, to put words in certain order, to make various meaning, to create an identity or identities out of fragments? Is it a play for, if not immortality, then other totalities? What do I want to do but write against the tug of mortality, aging, disease, death, Maybe I was reading Sontag's journals to resist the truth of loss, her death, and maybe I was resisting the loss of the self I'd been before the baby was born, or the way time changed after the baby was born. The loss of this baby in this chicken costume, who existed for one beautiful, exhausting moment, and soon enough would become a boy, a little boy and then a big boy, and maybe it was a newfound awareness of time, that very true cliché that watching a baby and a child grow up meant that I could see and feel more vividly than ever that life was about losing everything, that the only constant in life, as the Buddhists say, is change, impermanence. Last week I saw a show at the MoMA Museum in New York, a survey of Adrian Piper's work, which I highly recommend if you're able to see it, um, 
And it included this work that she did later. Can you guys see that? Let me see. Sorry. Um, the series she did with a, on a chalkboard, just this right text over and over again, everything will be taken away, everything will be taken away, repeated. And this was later in her life when she was, well, she's still alive, of course, and she um, was dealing with uh, illness and, and being treated. Um, and I find this, you know, there, I, I, I realize that there can be something bleak in this, in stating this, but I also find that there's a real freedom in this, in the awareness of this, and that artists have to stand over that void, as Marguerite Duras would say, in order to, to find the true subjects, right? The true subjects. Um, so resistant reading. In a, in a formed speech that Susan Sontag wrote later for her uh, Nobel Prize speech, she spoke of the, how the great project of literature is freedom. She wrote, to have access to literature, world literature, was to escape the prison of national vanity, of philistinism, of compulsory provincialism, of inane schooling, of imperfect destinies and bad luck. Literature was the passport to enter a larger life, that is, the zone of freedom. Literature was freedom especially in a time when the values of reading and inwardness are so strenuously challenged, literature is freedom. And I would argue that they're even more strenuously challenged today. She wrote that in 2003. But I love that phrase, an imperfect destiny. Who hasn't had an imperfect destiny or doesn't have an imperfect destiny? Bad luck, inane schooling, uh, not to speak of the prison of national vanity and all the other prisons. Despite our very contemporary focus on gratitude, which I quite believe in, it is true that life is, well, imperfect. So reading is a way of resisting. Reading is a way we can change and shape and challenge our narratives. And we should not take reading for granted. For example, recently, a very popular and often taught and wonderful book called The New Jim Crow, which was published in 2010 by Michelle Alexander, it appeared on a banned book list for inmates in state correctional facilities. The ACLU challenged the ban in New Jersey. They said they'll lift the ban. But it was particularly troubling that this book was banned because New Jersey has the country's widest disparity between white and black incarceration rates. The ACLU attorney wrote, for the state burdened with this systemic injustice to prohibit prisoners from reading a book about race and mass incarceration, incarceration is grossly ironic, misguided, and harmful. So I know nothing about the importance of reading or writing in a state correctional facility, but I do know how institutionalization inspires reading. Like many women, I've done my time in institutions uh, beyond Catholic school with nuns. I've been disciplined and contained by systems of refinement and rehabilitation. When I began writing in journals and notebooks, 
I did not have a voice or did not think I had a voice with any validity. So as I said, I learned to be a reader, a great reader, and that was the way before writing that I made meaning of my experience. Early on, I saw that the narratives of the world were lacking at best, and I knew silence would kill me. I deliberately sought out the resistant voices of women writers. I discovered Marguerite Duras, who's whose told and retold story of her own coming of age in French colonized Vietnam and an affair she had when she was a young girl that was so fraught with racial, gender, colonialist weight, a story that she would spend her lifetime trying to tell and telling and retelling to turn into meaning. And I'll read you the opening passage of her book, The Lover. This is the opening fragment. One day, I was already old. In the entrance of a public place, a man came up to me. He introduced himself and said, I've known you for years. Everyone says you were beautiful when you were young, but I want to tell you I think you're more beautiful now than then. Rather than your face as a young woman, I prefer your face as it is now, ravaged. And on the cover of the book, the original, is the, her face as a young woman. And as, a opening, as an opening section, which stands alone on the page, and she moves to another moment, um, I find that such a brilliant way to collapse time, to speak of this is the story of the young girl, but the voice now who is speaking it is the older woman. And it's a resistance there through the man who sees her, a resistance to the idea of women as being more valuable when they're young, when they're young and looking like this, but silent, but unable to tell their story, as opposed to a woman now who, she was 70 when she wrote this, is able to reclaim and tell that story that she could only experience then. Right, so she collapses those two voices into that opening section in this, in this rather brilliant way. And I, if you haven't read her, I, I highly recommend that. I also read Mary Gordon, whose first novel, Final Payments, was a story of a young Catholic woman coming of age without a father, which was a novel and her whole work, a process that resists the silences of Irish Catholicism the schizophrenia of being female, which is what Chris Cross would later describe it in her resistant narrative, a novel called I Love Dick, which I also highly recommend, and they made it into a TV show. Um, Nawal El-Sadawi's Woman at Point Zero. She's an Egyptian doctor who wrote a novel in which the doctor, as narrator, goes to interview a young woman who is disenfranchised and allows the woman to tell her the story of her imperfect destiny, to put it mildly, that led her into an Egyptian prison. It's a story, the young woman's story of abandonment, rape, misogyny, a story that incarceration often erases. And these are just a few examples of the art and literature that made me who I am, that made me understand the project of literature, as Sontag said, as the passport to enter a larger life. A living narrative, a resistant narrative of identity, which I'm always revising, refining, extending, and reshaping. When I wrote Promising Young Women, my first book, I'd become oppressed by the story of so-called mental illness, a narrative that had dogged me since college when I was institutionalized after a suicide attempt. 
A short-term hospitalization then led to years in a state hospital system that I am lucky to report I escaped, recovered, becoming a functioning member of society. But I'm not exaggerating when I say that if it wasn't for literature, for reading and writing, I don't think I would have survived those years. Here's how I wrote, began the novel which I wrote about those years. This piece, is, this story is called Ward 6. Ever since I heard Don Reek say that the beauty contestant deserved to be raped by Mike Tyson, I wanted him dead. I wrote this in a letter to Dredd. I wrote a lot of letters back then. Some of them I even mailed. I wrote them in my notebook. Later I'd tear out the pages to stuff in envelopes. It was all sort of satisfying, writing, tearing, licking, stuffing. This happened in the spring, that I wound up in a psych ward. I guess it had to be the spring. I remember the oppressive way the sun would hit the windows at midday. I felt tragic, we all did, and the sun had a way of interfering with the narrative. Anyway, it was better that I was inside writing in my notebooks, hearing kids squeals from the playground below, the muffled noises of New York City traffic. So in that piece, I'm resisting the narrative of the, the young, hopeful woman with her life ahead of her and here voicing the, the voice of a young woman who wants to refuse and reject and resist this world, particularly a world where men walking by, men around her are saying that the beauty contestant accusing Mike Tyson of raping her is lying or that she deserved it because of what she was wearing or whatever. And this was this was in the early 90s, long before Me Too, so perhaps uh, some of you remember that in any case. Yesterday, right. I do believe that my life in those years and becoming a writer was a giant resistance, a performance of the no that is literature's project. The no, Eileen Miles said, that's an act of love. Anne Boyer's A Handbook of Disappointed Fate which recently came out, begins with an essay titled No, and I put this sum of an excerpt in the handout. History is full of people who just didn't. They said no thank you, turned away, escaped to the desert, lived in barrels, burned down their own houses, killed the rapists, pushed away dinner, meditated into the light. So what is the power of this refusal? Boyer goes on to ask this question, finding the history of literature played out in this enormous resistant gesture. There is a lot of room for meaning inside a no spoken in tremendous logic of a refused order of the world. Poetry's no can protect a potential yes. Or more precisely, poetry's no is the one that can protect the hell yeah or every hell yeah's variations. So this is why Eileen Miles speaks of no as a loving act, a protective move, a creative act. I think that as an artist, a writer, our job is to say no, to take the limited narratives and to fuck with them, write back to them and around them and through them, mess them up, rewrite these stories over and over again if necessary. Some of my favorite writers like Marguerite Dura write the same story in different iterations their entire lives 
uh, Sherman Alexie, Jamaica Kincaid. This very act of repetition, recursive return and reiteration is an act of resistance. A way of saying that one story will not do, that we need to keep telling this story, finding new perspectives, new ways into this story. As I began conceiving this talk, I consulted not only my bookshelves with all of my imaginary friends and spiritual teachers, but my friends who are my living teachers. I asked each of them what this idea of resistant narrative meant to them. The, the writer Sherman Alexie said that what happens when we write back is that we change the narrative. His essay, Captivity, begins with a passage to the Native American captivity memoir of Mary Rowlandson. He begins with this passage from her captivity memoir, which was quite popular when it was published. And he writes, remember that when I tell you this story, it will change. Or what the poet Frank Badar wrote, we fill pre-existing forms, and when we change them, we change them and are changed by them. My friend, the playwright David Ajmi, at first resisted this idea of resisting narrative. I don't want to resist narrative, he said. I like narrative. And then I asked him about the structure of his plays, and he admitted, well, I'm always unraveling the narrative as I'm creating it. I asked him about the narrative moves in his play 3C, which is a very smart painful response to the TV show Three's Company, which um, many of us grew up with that sort of in the background. Um, and David and I, you know, Generation X, that was a show that we feel like was in the air, in the water we were swimming in, before we really understood what that show was about. I remember a friend of mine, her you know, we knew it was bad, her, her dad wouldn't let us watch it, but David talks about realizing only much later the narratives of homophobia and misogyny that are in that show that we'd internalized without understanding. So he wrote this play called 3C where he's sort of eviscerating that subtext and taking it out. And he said, the way he described writing 3C, which incidentally was uh, when it opened in New York, uh, a week into the run, the lawyers for Three's Company, the TV show, shut it down, sent him a cease and desist. Yeah, and there was a long lawsuit, which years later he, he eventually won, and, and now it can be in productions again. But um, yeah, I mean, they, I guess they have nothing better to do than find plays, like off-off-Broadway plays to shut down, right? Um, <coughs> that will make Three's Company look bad. Um, but he said, writing that play, he said, 3C for me was almost like me going to a party and hating the party and forcing myself to go until I have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> and I really love that idea of resisting narrative. And he, now he's been writing a memoir. And he said, the memoir I'm writing is about how I was looking for a story from my life. And so, as a teenager, I would like Madonna, and I would start doing stuff. I would be like, what is Madonna doing? So I would do that. And when she changed her persona, I, was, I saw what she was doing. And what did that say about reality, that you could change your persona? She's breaking boundaries. So things we say about a self, I realized, it's not what you thought it was. 
So that gave me a story, a hypothesis about how I could expand my sense of self. I would go to the movies. I would learn various things about life. So we have to keep refining these narratives, these cultural narratives. As he said, sometimes the narratives become dangerous, destructive. Jews are vermin. And sometimes the narrative, women are too emotional. Sometimes the narrative, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Or sometimes the narrative now is love wins and we all have to love each other. And there's lots of different kinds of things like this that we receive constantly from the culture which we need to process and we refine it and we contest it because narratives must be contested. In one of these conversations, David had told me he's in Los Angeles that he had just been with a bunch of playwrights to see Hannah Gadsby perform her show in Los Angeles, a show titled Nanette, which is now on Netflix, and I urge you to watch. And, and he insisted I go see it, and I did. And her narrative starts with this idea of absence, with erasure. I want to tell my story because I didn't have one. Nanette, billed as a comedy, becomes, as she says, her last comedy show, as she subverts the narrative of comedy in order to tell a more honest story, in order to make art out of the story she needs to tell. So the show comes out of her awareness that her success in comedy on the circuit that this came from the self-deprecation but that very self-deprecation, that narrative was hurting her. It was humiliating her. Do you under, she said, do you understand what self-deprecation means when it comes from someone who already exists in the margins? It's not humility. It's humiliation. I put myself down in order to speak, in order to seek permission to speak, and I simply will not do that anymore. So in this show, Gadsby resists the narrative of stand-up because it is linked, she's discovered, to the shame she wants to reject. She resists this narrative while creating it, like Ajmi, unraveling it as she creates it. And who was it who said that the artist's job is just that? Figure out what prison you are in and find a way out. I think it was John Cage. So Gatsby realized that her story mattered. I never had a story because I never thought I was worth anything, she said. And basically people just left me for dead. And now I have a story and I feel like I have to give it to somebody. I have to do something with it. So stepping back a bit to this, I, the, the very phrase, resistant narratives. Like Paula said yesterday, Theory, as an artist, it's not necessary to read theory, but it can be very interesting. And I first encountered the phrase resistant narrative in an academic context. It was the theorist Foucault who wrote, where there is power, there is resistance. I was teaching a course in queer literature, and I taught Jonathan Coet's 2003 film, Tarnation, a film he composed entirely on iMovie, these are some stills from it. Um, using home movie material he'd been created, creating since his childhood. He made the film for around $200, though it was later celebrated by Gus Van Sant, the filmmaker who gave it funding and larger distribution. 
And again, I highly, highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. But the, the extensive critical response to the film, one scholar described this autobiographical film as a resistant narrative. That is, he tells this story, his own story and his mother's story, as a means of resistance, as a tool for change. She saw Tarnation as an example of how autobiographical writing can be used to interpret and, and reinvent reality. So it's structured as a collage, which is a structure that I often use and I think we should all use as writers. Um, but the two most significant narrative threads explore his identity as a gay man growing up in Texas and then his mother's identity, which has been so determined and limited by uh, her experience in the mental health system in Texas since she was young. And she had an accident when she was young and, and uh, falling off the uh, a rooftop. And her parents had committed her, and she was given repeated electroshock therapy treatment. And as her son sees it, that was, in fact, a treatment that caused the downward spiral from which she never um, recovered. And so his film becomes a resistance to both her parents, his grandparents' narrative that she was sick, that she was making up her illness, and a resistance to the idea of her as you know, invaluable as a, any, any longer. She had been a young girl, a, t a TV commercial star, um, and then after her illness and her um, electroshock therapy, she had twice a week for two years, he saw that this led her into this lifetime of debilitation, of mental illness. And he needed to retell her story. He needs to reclaim his mother's story in order to really live his own story, to tell the story that he needs to tell of himself, and to live that, that Sontag's passport to freedom in order to have the freedom to live a full life and to reject the shame that came from his own coming of age as a gay man. Here's an early picture of his, with his mom, and, and this, this is later when she comes to visit him in New York. In my reading, it's his mother's narrative that compels the film, the larger conversation about women and institutionalization and power, a story her son needs to tell, a conversation he needs to have, calling into question the narratives that limited his mother's life, a beauty, a model, a mental patient, a woman, a single mother. There is a generosity to the film that feels resistant. Here is a woman now dismissed as insane, crazy, mental, pathetic, tragic, a failure. And here is a son who loves her, who made his own life as an artist despite her failures and because of her love, who is able to see the forces that led her to be where and who she is today, a son who will reclaim and rewrite his identity and Renee's identity. At the same time I taught this, I read Alison Bechdel's graphic memoir, Fun Home, which many of you might know, which is another resistant narrative, the story of a young queer woman coming of age alongside the story of her closeted gay father who killed himself 
or so she reads his accidental death that way. Fun Home became a bestseller and eventually a Broadway musical, and it circles these questions of identity, of the legacy of shame and homophobia and power, both within and beyond a family. She builds her story on other narratives, claiming and resisting the narratives her father gave her, taught her, celebrated from the great Gatsby to Camus to Proust to Oscar Wilde. And the reader is left with the sense that Bechtel needed to rewrite, revisit, resist her father's story in order to live her own. So what I want to ask you as you consider your own resistant narratives or as you resist narrative is who or what or how many of us are here today because someone else suffered or failed or lived a life limited by forces that no longer limit our lives or our identities. For example, we have many narratives of migration, which is so fraught and so complicated and so urgent. And to understand a human life beyond a story or a number. Sonia Livingston's brief essay from just a few years ago called A Thousand Mary Doyles, in this essay, which is in the handout, if you have it, she allows one Mary Doyle, who she discovers is an, she has an ancestor. She's, I believe, 1 16th Irish. And she discovers she had an ancestor um, named Mary Doyle. And she do knows nothing about her, but she imagines her life. She imagines her into being in a brief, lyrical, stunning essay. Her essay becomes an imaginative feat. She makes the story of one Mary Doyle speak for hundreds, thousands of young women or men who left everything to cross the ocean to an unknown new life. The essay speaks in a new way to the specifics of Irish immigration, which is something we reduce or romanticize or has become this cliché. But in her essay, she has you really feel it, right? Which is what the best art does, right? Um, it also speaks to the ongoing story of migration, of exile, of hope. It is a story to resist the easy narrative of migration, which is never easy. It becomes a place to make one woman's story a particular story and to honor and feel the specific horror and risk of such a move, and loss, right? Time and language, back to Sontag. There, I have also included a more recent contemporary migrant story by a young poet in New York, in Harlem by way of Ecuador, who for 20 years was uh, undocumented. She writes of being undocumented, being unable to return home for 20 years to see her grandparents. In her case, it's the narrative of documenting a person, a human being, which is, of course, a narrative construction. And it has informed her life and shaped her life and prevented her from seeing her grandparents for 20 years. Whatever your background, your story, or your stories, your sense of self, however shifting or varied, think about where you have or have needed to, or will resist? Who is your they? Who are the they in your life? What stories have been told about you, or to you, about your future, about your past? 
What have you internalized? What have you rejected? Ask yourself, where have you said no and why? How is that no an act of love? Perhaps these stories that have to do with gender, of femininity or masculinity, or of nationality, or race, or health, or illness, or the narratives of family, familial expectation, which we all have, right? And how have you answered, to, answered those stories? It, it's a bizarre thing to say, but I lost my mother when I was very young, and I feel that that gave me a freedom um, for better and worse, you know, it's, it's, but I do feel like part of me even becoming a writer was reading women to try to get these ideas, whereas if I had had my mother, which of course I wish I had, it would have been very different sense of being in the world, so, um, yeah, that is something that happens after people, after you lose someone close to you. I mean, there are, who was it who was saying they couldn't publish a book till after I think that's, with Alison Bechdel's Fun Home, though, that's part of the power. And it, it is that she's, it's much easier to write about her father because he's been gone. And when she writes in her next book about her mother, her mother's still alive, and it's much more complicated and messier. Um, both harder to represent, and then hard, she's clearly dealing with the, still, the relationship is still very much alive and part of who she is. So that's a difficult thing to write. It's dynamic, yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you. you.